There's another experimental talk. <laughs> After the suggestions this afternoon, oh, what to talk about? I uh, went back and looked over my notes, and I couldn't find anything. It even seemed vaguely appropriate. So I wandered around for a while, and then at 7:15. Uh, I had an idea. <laughs> so, so. Uh, I was sitting on the porch up there during the, while you were sitting here the last time for about seven o'clock, and I was just looking out over the path coming up to the cabin and the trees and this place and listening to the birds chitter away, and I just realized how. Well, it's really all right, just like that. What what what, what needs fixing? Yeah, just sit there and let the sun go down, and just let the trees grow. And I didn't have to rearrange the trees. I didn't have to make the sun stay up a little later. And I just felt quite at ease and at one with. What was going on there? What is going on here? And then I was reflecting on uh, how, when I just came in the room here, it's such a familiar place already. Such a warm, really, even though we haven't been chattering away and making good friends with each other, still a very warm place to come in and recognize. Oh yeah, there's Sue's place. There's David's place. Ah,、oh, there's Dennis's chair. And just to feel like、uh, some connection, some really deep connection and、uh, appreciation for what's going on here. You can tell I don't have very good notes for this. <laughs> so, I thought I'd talk a little bit about connection, connecting with each other, metta, and connecting with ourselves and caring for ourselves, and、uh, the okayness of all of life. I'll read a poem. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees one hundred miles repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me of despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile. The world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscape, over the prairies, and the deep trees, the mountains, and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely. 
the world offers itself to you, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, wondrous, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. I think when we can feel our place in the family of things, in the family of each other, that really is the essence of love, of real care, loving kindness, sensitivity to ourselves and others. And I was thinking of uh, this practice, you know, metta practice and loving kindness, and I was thinking, God, everybody knows what love is. But I couldn't think of anything to say. We all know what it feels like. Very hard to describe though, isn't it? What that connection with yourself feels like when you really love yourself. When everything you know about yourself Everything you discover about yourself is okay. It gets really hard doing insight to love yourself. Really difficult. Why? In this practice of insight, we begin to look beneath the appearance of things. We all have our appearance, the face, that, the face that we show the world, our persona, our personality, the role we play. I'm the teacher. Thank goodness I got a role. I'd hate to be here naked without a role. Thank goodness you guys got a role. You're yogis. And we learn how to get by in life, you know, being a child, being someone's kid, having them big people as parents, having brothers and sisters, having a role as a student, as an employer, employee, etc., a mate, a partner, a lover, a friend. And we live behind these roles, behind these masks, behind these appearances, for the most part. Hoping that we get our needs met, hoping that we feel loved, hoping that we're okay. And then we come on retreat and we don't have our roles and we don't have our masks and we don't have anything to do except look at what's really going on here. And we take a look in this mind and we see horrible, shameful, embarrassing feelings of worthlessness and self-despair and low self-esteem and frustration and you know other pleasant things like that and love for ourselves is out the window because we've never really looked at 
and accepted that part of ourselves. And we find in our relationships in life, when you find somebody that is very, uh, has a low sense of self-esteem, is a very depressed person, is a very unhappy person, it's difficult to like them. Difficult to love in another what we haven't yet seen in ourselves. What we haven't really felt about ourselves. What we don't yet know about ourselves. And so when we see it displayed in others, we say, Ooh, I think I'll be friends with you instead. Or we get angry. We get disappointed. Because we can't accept that in the other person. And if we can't accept it in the other person, we can't accept it in ourselves either. I think uh, love for ourselves is really softening our mind so that we can let into our mind what is scary, what is embarrassing, what other people can't and won't acknowledge within us, those feelings we have that nobody wants to see displayed, those desires we have that nobody wants to fulfill, those fears we have that everyone else has too and doesn't want to acknowledge. And when we soften our mind, when we, when we, when we just soothe ourselves a little bit and soften our mind, then we can begin to feel what that stuff really feels like. What it really feels like to have a, a gaping wound of need that goes unmet. when we just don't get the love we need. And we feel that. And it's like salt on an open wound. And we come, you know, we try to get close to that here. Try to get close to what it feels like to be lonely. And to be afraid. And it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. I really appreciate all the work you're doing here to get close to yourself. Because that's really what this work is. Learning to love ourselves. All of it. Like the poem says, you don't have to be good. You have permission here to be as bad as you really are. And love it.
None of this is on my notes. Where do I go from here? <laughs> I, uh, so, to help us get through this thing called life, and to begin to discover what we are, open to it, and accept it, to fill out our life. Someone has printed up here the rules for being human. <laughs> so I thought I'd read them. Have you seen it? Yeah. It comes when you get totally lost and don't have any idea what you're doing. First, you will receive a body. You may like it or hate it, but it will be yours for the entire period this time around. <laughs> and I'm sure... I'm sure we have discovered just how much we hate this body. <laughs> that pain, my ache, my... Oh. And second, one of those rules that we all know very well, you will learn lessons. <laughs> you are enrolled in a full-time informal school called life. Each day in the school, you will have the opportunity to learn lessons. You may like the lessons or think them irrelevant and stupid. But you will learn lessons. What lessons have we discovered here that we haven't yet learned? Rule number three is there are no mistakes, only lessons. There are no mistakes. That's permission to accept everything you have ever done. Anything you have ever done has never been wrong. We can't even believe that. We can't believe that. Even if we want to, we can't believe that. We still think something we did was wrong somewhere. There are no mistakes, only lessons. Growth is a process of trial and error, experimentation. The failed experiments are as much a part of the process as the experiment that ultimately works. A lesson is repeated until you learn it. <laughs> <laughs> we have discovered that one here. I'm sure. <laughs> If I just try this maneuver, maybe it'll go away. <laughs> it'll come back. A lesson will be presented to you in various forms until you have learned it. When you have learned it, you can then go on to the next lesson. <laughs> However, learning lessons does not end. <laughs> As someone asked today, what is the end of all this? There's no end. There is no part of life that does not contain its lessons. If you are alive, there are lessons to be learned. 
don't we have an attitude that somehow we're going to get to some place in life, maybe next retreat, maybe this retreat, maybe next retreat, or, you know, after we graduate, or once we have our family together, our relationship, where suddenly we've, we've done it. Then we can just coast the rest of life. We've, we've got it. Unconsciously, I have, I have this attitude. It's like, well, when I get it together, then I'll enjoy, or I'll be all right, or something. I think if we reflect a little bit, we realize that, you know, there's always going to be more to accept about ourselves. As soon as we get comfortable with this, we'll, other stuff will bubble up. Well, we have to develop tremendous patience, tremendous tolerance for never-ending looking, I guess. There is no better than here. (laughs) Rule number six. When your there has become a here, you will simply obtain another there that will again look better than here. (laughs) Or as they say in the lyrics, the wine ain't sweeter and the grass ain't greener either side of the hill. (laughs) Number seven, others are merely mirrors of you. You cannot love or hate something about another person unless it reflects to you something you love or hate in yourself. What we love in others is what we have learned to love in ourselves. What we hate or despise or cannot tolerate in others is what we cannot tolerate, have not seen and despise in ourselves. So that would mean practicing love for others is really practicing love for oneself. As we come to accept the foibles and and, uh, the difficult parts of others, and then we really learn to accept that in ourselves. We really recognize ourselves in that other person, where the boundaries and the difference between I and the other thin out and cease to exist. Number eight, there's only ten. Number eight, what you make of your life is up to you. You have all the tools and resources you need. What you do with them is up to you. The choice is yours. Just a footnote over here. There is an increasing tendency in our culture to identify ourselves in a class of victims so that we feel victimized. And that's not to say that we aren't victimized, but a major or a predominant or primary identification in a victim class and uh, identification with victimization is quite contrary to uh, the choice is yours. How are we going to resolve that? How are we going to say, yes, I've been victimized by being a male, being a female? 
being American by my parents. it is in, in the victim role that's so seductive. Why we like to be there? I mean, we do. I mean, I like it too, you know. My father's alcoholic. I'm an ACOA, right? Adult child alcoholic. Mm, that's what I am. <laughs> yeah. Now I know why I'm so screwed up. But that doesn't really solve anything. Number nine, your answers lie inside you. The answers to life's questions lie inside you. All you need to do is look, listen, and trust. Look and listen sounds like mindfulness. Trust sounds like confidence. Look, listen, and trust that the answers are inside of you, that the answers will somehow come to you from inside. If we are patient and tolerant and look and, and just wait, Listen for it. So those are the first nine. You'll receive a body. You'll learn lessons. There are no mistakes. A lesson is repeated until learned. Lessons do not end. There is no better than here. Others are merely mirrors of you. What you make of your life is up to you. Your answers lie inside yourself. In the tenth, the one that we all know, the best. You will forget all this. <laughs> this is the operating manual for being human. Unfortunately, it's very true. We will forget all that. Ramdas tells a story in his book, Miracle of Love, about his teacher, Neem Karoli Baba. One day Ramdas was uh, at some gathering with uh, Maharaji, and there were a lot of Westerners there and a lot of Indians. And the Westerners were being really obnoxious, just being really whatever they were, probably arrogant and loud and, and just really inconsiderate, or so Ramdas thought. And uh, Ramdas got really angry, and he threw his food at him, trying to get him to smarten up. <laughs> Maharaji saw it, said, please come here, Ramdas. And so Ramdas came over, and uh, Ninkroli Baba gave him some cookies and milk, and patted him on the head. <laughs> <laughs> and he said to Ramdas, he said, love everyone. And Ramdas says, but Maharaji, you told me to tell the truth, and I don't love everyone. Ninkaroli, Baba says, pulls him real close, face to face, and he says, love everyone and tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Ramdas said, that's the way it's got to be. Sometimes 
no, the Maharaji says, oh, sometimes the most anger reflects the strongest love. Ramdas says that's the way it has to be. Anger will just have to give way to make room for love. Now, any of you who've been in an intimate relationship, probably all of us, know that the person you love the most is the one you can be the angriest at, that you can hurt, that you can say those things that hurt the most, too. Strange, isn't it? And so, this person that we love the most, right here, sitting inside of our own skin, is the one that we can hurt the most also. That we can deny and frustrate. Hmm. The Buddha said, somewhere in here, that he looked all over, all over the realms, all the realms of the universe. Uh, yes. I visited all quarters of the universe with my mind and did not find anyone dearer than myself. Likewise, for everyone else, their self is the dearest. So one who loves him or herself will never harm another. One who loves themselves will never harm another. They say that metta, pure, unconditional love, is the quality of mind that some beings live with in the upper planes, in the Brahma realms. It's called the Brahma Vihara, an abode of uh, Brahma fairies or uh, heavenly beings that that feeling of love, that feeling of unconditional, total acceptance, just that, is such a sublime and exalted feeling that it's the quality of mind of God's. And in that feeling, in that state of mind, there's no separation between oneself and the other, where the other's concern, the other's suffering, the other's joy, the other's issues in life are one's own, where their welfare, their happiness is your own. where the love is like a glue between people. Not a sticky attachment, but it's a glue that binds people together. And when there is that, 
connection, that uh, sensitivity of connection and caring for the other, how can we be annoyed by them? How can we be frustrated by them? How can we dislike them or be angry at them? Their acting, their behavior, their speech is their attempt to be happy. As misdirected and as misguided as it might be, it's their way of trying to be happy. We don't have to like their means, but understand that uh, underneath it there is this being that wants to be happy, and we can want that for them. When we can see the lovable qualities in ourselves or in another, then it's very difficult to be impatient, intolerant. Instead, we have some peace of mind or peace of heart, tranquility in our heart. But let's face it, in our society, there's not a lot of patience and tolerance. There's a lot of impatience in hurried, uh, stressful relationships that we have to deal with in our everyday life. And they condition us to be insensitive, to be impatient, to be intolerant. And I think a lot of us take it, internalize that impatience, that intolerance, that uh, disagreeable, disliking nature, and we reflect that in ourselves. And we end up with a tremendous amount of self-hatred. Sharon Salzberg, one of the women that I teach with, the three-month course, had been teaching meditation for 20 years or so, and she really sees that a lot of us have a tremendous amount of self-hatred, inability to accept who and what we are, and that for many of us, many years of practice are first spent developing a healthy relationship to ourselves before we can actually practice insight. And so she went a couple of years ago to a conference with the Dalai Lama and other some others in India. And during one of the question and discussion periods, she asked the Dalai Lama about this. And uh, she explained to him what her experience was of Westerners, you know, how much they cannot accept themselves. And the Dalai Lama could not understand that. And the translator translated it, and he still couldn't understand it. And other people that were at the conference explained it from their perspectives also, and eventually the Dalai Lama got it. And he was shocked. 
He said he never knew. He just never had heard, never knew that people in the West had so much self-hatred. And he said that in his country, people practice, you know that uh, body meditation I was talking about, they practice this meditation so that they can, so they can develop a little disliking for themselves, for the body, so they can get a little clarity and distance and see things more clearly. And considered and reflected that probably we have to do just the opposite. To come to accept this body and this mind. And not to use uh, meditation practice as a tool for further self-hatred. Because when we, you know, are unable to accept what we know about ourselves, our mind closes, becomes very tight, becomes very rigid, and we become very fearful of what we see and can accept in ourselves and in others. But love develops that ability to be patient and to forbear others difficult behavior. They say in the, in the Buddhist text that there are 11 benefits from practicing loving-kindness, from practicing metta. And they're interesting to reflect on. The first is that one sleeps in peace. Well, I am. <laughs> when I was in Burma, practicing as a monk, I also practiced some loving kindness for about a year, like we do here, but practicing loving kindness. And Sayadaw told me all these eleven benefits that you get: sleep in peace. And the first week I was practicing loving kindness, I had nightmares the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked him about it. He said, "You must be doing something wrong." Well, after a while, indeed, sleep did become a little more peaceful. Second benefit is one wakes up in comfort with a feeling of having rested well. And the third is that one has only pleasant dreams. Fourth, one is loved by humans. And I think it would be very easy to understand that if we were a very, if we're practicing loving kindness and really uh, generating loving thoughts about and towards ourselves and towards others, that it really sets up a, a vibration of harmony between ourselves and others. We really welcome someone else in your space, where you accept them in your space. Not invading your space, but you accept them uh, being around you. And that harmony is really protection. Setting up this boundary of harmony is really a protection against fear, jealousy, anger, attachment. 
And that protection provides us with security, with a sense of being safe with others. And in that safety is happiness. If we felt safe, we would feel happy. We would begin to open to the feeling of contentment, at easeness, and happy. So one is loved by humans, one is also loved by non-humans, animals, uh, devas, heavenly beings, beings that exist around here. In fact, the Buddha first taught loving-kindness to a group of monks who had gone to this forest during the three-month, during the range retreat. They traveled, monks have to stay in one place. So this group of monks had gone to a forest in a, some distance away and had uh, gone to practice meditation there. And when they came to the forest, all of the spirits that lived in the forest had to come out of the trees and live on the ground. They couldn't live higher than the monks. They understood that. And so they were upset. And they were making all kinds of noise and racket and bothering the monks' meditation. <laughs> so the monks got all upset and they walked back to the Buddha and they said, Hey, we can't practice in that grove because the, the, all the spirits that live in that grove don't want us there and they're making too much racket. And the Buddha said, Oh, well, you'll have to practice loving kindness. So he taught them loving kindness. How to feel love and send love to these other beings. So they walked back, practicing loving-kindness the whole way. And when they got there, they were greeted with, uh, well, not open arms, but whatever spirits have. <laughs> some, some sort of warm welcome to be back there. Not only is one loved by those uh, unseen beings, but one is protected by them. One is protected by unseen beings. The Buddha said that. You know, call on your guardian deva, or whatever it is, protection. Another one that was questionable. One becomes invulnerable to weapons, poison, and fire. So if your love is really strong, Weapons won't hurt you. Taking it to an extreme, I happened to ask Sayadaw when he gave us that one. I said, you mean nuclear weapons if, you know, and he said, we haven't tried it yet, have we? <laughs> maybe. If we could get the whole country to, well, maybe. There are stories in the, uh, in the uh, commentaries of the Buddha, at the Buddha's time, of beings with tremendously powerful loving-kindness being able to uh, turn away uh, the effects of intended harm towards them. And the Buddha himself was uh, what, accosted by a drunken elephant that was uh, you know, set upon the Buddha by his jealous cousin. Devadatta, and uh, Devadatta got the elephant a little drunk, sent him down the narrow corridor, down the narrow pathway, to stomp the Buddha. 
because Devadatta wanted to take over the order of monks. And uh, Ananda, the Buddha's right-hand attendant, he stepped out in front of the Buddha to try to protect him from this drunk, raging elephant. And the Buddha said, No, Ananda, you better stand back. <laughs> and the Buddha sent out his love to that elephant. And it stopped in front of him and bowed down to the Buddha. Well, it may be mythological, but there's a message there that's greater than the unbelievability of that story. Number eight is one has easy access to tranquility. And I think if we just reflect a little bit about the feeling of love and harmony and peace within oneself and with others, how tranquil our lives would be. What cause for agitation if there was that strong a love and a care and concern for oneself and others? One will have a clear and serene face. Maybe. One can die with an undiluted mind and have a good rebirth. Maybe. We'll have to try it. In the development of metta and arousing feelings and the power of metta in your own mind, we often begin with ourself. And sometimes it's the hardest person to begin with. Sometimes it's easier to, to feel love towards another person or towards the deer that walk by or towards you know our pet more than for ourselves even but however we can begin to generate that feeling begin to actually feel what love feels like that just open-hearted tender care, care and concern for another being oh, then we can begin to move it and direct it towards others, pervaded to others. Again, when I was practicing metta at the monastery, started with myself, I didn't have a clue as to what was going on. Then the instruction was to pick someone who was very noble and very worthy of, of respect and love and that uh, has been very kind and considerate to you. And So I picked Saido, of course being my teacher and I'd never I'd never really felt I've never been a devotional type of person but in reflecting on how kind Saido had been to me I was able to begin to get a flicker a little quiver of like hey this feels pretty good and in time was able to develop some feelings of, of love and appreciation and, and sincere wish for his happiness and uh, clarity of mind. And as the course of 
practice develops, uh, after one has learned how to uh, develop deep absorptions, deep states of concentration with love for that person, then one picks another type of person, someone whom one is friends with, someone who one has a uh, a friendly relationship with. We don't start with that person because it's sometimes uh, the friendliness gets involved, gets distorts the feeling of pure love. And if that person is upset, or if, if in the reflection on that person we remember uh, some distress that that person's in, well, we can feel distressed. And that's not love. So you pick someone who's originally or initially uh, very, just so exalted and noble that you can easily, more easily feel love. But as we continue to practice and uh, the second type of person is one who we are friends with, and then we learn how to, to send and pervade metta to them. And then, uh, let's see, there's another person. Who's the next one? Neutral person. I guess neutral, huh? So the next is, you pick somebody who's totally neutral. Somebody that you see or know, but you don't really have any feelings for or against. They're just a neutral person. This was the hardest person to send love to. There was this one man in the uh, little dormitory. I stayed in this little dormitory. It was about ten rooms or so. And there was this one Burmese man that would come there every Friday afternoon, and he would leave every Monday morning. He ran a factory downtown. And he spent every weekend at the meditation center. Worked during the week, came there on the weekend. And he was the most invisible person. He was there, and I saw him. You know, he was around doing his things, doing his meditation, going to lunch and whatnot. But just had no... I never heard him say a word the whole year, four, four, four years I was there. He just a totally neutral person. And I saw him, and I tried to send metta to him. And it wasn't that I didn't feel metta. It's that I couldn't, I had no internal image of him. So when I sat down, closed my eyes, he disappeared. He just, <laughs> don't know who he is. There's no feeling for him whatsoever. And it was really a struggle to, to bring up feelings for that person. Now reflect for a minute. How many anonymous people you meet daily in your life? The clerk and the, the postal worker and the whatnot, whatnot. You know, the person at the bank. Pretty anonymous people. No particular involved relationship with them. Totally neutral. Do you feel love for them? What, 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 would, it, what would it take to really feel love, really strong love and care for them and wish for them to be happy? That's a real practice. I mean, it, it's, it takes a lot of effort. Practice. But after you get some momentum and you learn how to access deep absorptions towards that type of person, uh, then you pick your enemy. Or you pick someone that you have a difficult time with. Someone that you argue with, fight with, hate, or whatever. And you call them to mind. And of course, when you start calling them to mind, all you can remember is their disagreeable nature. 
impossible to generate love. But eventually you learn how to also call to mind those people that have been the ones who pushed your most sensitive buttons. How to call into mind and how to access deep states of absorption in love towards them. So, in the text, they say the final exam for those who have practiced loving-kindness is you're given a question. You're put in a situation. You have with you, of course, yourself, your most exalted teacher, your best friend, and your worst enemy. And, uh, what would you call it? Highwaymen come along, round you all up, say, all right, your money or your life. We don't want your money. We want one of you. And it's your choice. Who would you offer to be killed? Now, we've been practicing love for ourselves, for our teachers, for our friends, for our enemies, for the highwaymen. Who do we offer? Our teacher? Unthinkable. Our enemy? More likely. <laughs> but wait a minute. If we, are, if we really care equally for all beings, there's no difference. I better give myself. Wait. Oneself also is equal to all the others. It's a dilemma, isn't it? Well, you have to do your own practice, then you'll find out. Yeah. One reflection that is really it is really helpful for considering when one begins uh, doing loving kindness, or when one uh, gets angry gets frustrated, or whatever, the Buddha said, it is not easy to find a being who has not formerly been your mother, or your father, or your brother, or your sister, your son, or your daughter. It is not easy to find a being who has not formerly been your mother, your father, your brother, your son, your daughter, probably your husband, or your wife, or your... It's a family reunion here. <laughs> oh, do you miss this point? Ah, uh, later. Lovely little prayer. It's a prayer for children. It's called a prayer for children. But it's really an expression of love. Quite long. You got time? <laughs> It all begins off, we pray for children, but it really means we love children. Hmm? We love children who sneak popsicles before supper, who erase holes in math workbooks, who throw tantrums in the grocery store and pick at their food. We love children who like ghost stories and who can never find their shoes. We also love children 
who stare at. Uh, we also pray for those who stare at photographers from behind barbed wire, who can't bound down the street in a pair of new sneakers. For those who are born in places we wouldn't be caught dead in. For those who never go to the circus, and for those who live in an X-rated world. We pray for children who sleep with the dog and bury the goldfish, who bring us sticky kisses and fistfuls of dandelions, who get visits from the tooth fairy and who hug us in a hurry and forget their lunch money. We also pray for those who never get dessert, who have no safe blanket to drag behind them, who watch their parents watch them die, and who can't find any bread to steal who don't have any rooms to clean up, whose pictures aren't on anybody's dresser, and whose monsters are real. Remember, we are all of these. Those whose monsters are real. We pray for ourselves when we spend our allowance before Tuesday, when we shove our dirty clothes under the bed and never rinse out the tub who don't like to be kissed in front of the carpool, who squirm in church or temple or meditation hall and scream in the home. We love ourselves when our tears we sometimes laugh at and our smiles can make us cry. We also love ourselves when our nightmares come in the daytime. We love those who will eat anything and those who have never seen a dentist and those who aren't spoiled by anybody and those who go to bed hungry and cry themselves to sleep, who live and move but have no being. And we pray for children who must be carried and for those who want to be carried and for those we never give up on, and for those who don't get a second chance, for those we smother, and for those who will grab the hand of anybody kind enough to offer it. Now what's this all got to do with insight? Again, that wonderful old Hindu Nisargadatta, he says, Wisdom teaches me I am nothing. Love teaches me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. The wisdom of insight tells me that I am nothing. The love of metta teaches me that I am everything. Between these two, my life flows.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.